Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to Battle Walks. Once again, we are exploring the great battlefields of Europe. And joining me on today's walk once again is Pete Smith. Pete, welcome back. Thanks, Matt. Good to be back. Looking forward to this one, mate. A site that is always very close to my heart. It's not an Australian site. It's not even a British site. It's a Canadian site. The preserved battlefield and memorial at Vimy Ridge in the Arras sector of the of the battlefields of France. A site that I absolutely love visiting and just quite a dramatic and confronting site in many ways, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's one of my uh, favourite sites to take people to to get a, a feel of the battlefield. In fact, it's the only site, if we're looking at the Empire forces and the landscape that we've preserved, we haven't preserved a, a great deal, to be honest. Uh, the French have preserved enormous tracks around Verdun, but we've preserved little. And this is the largest area that we can actually visit. We can't walk across it because that's the whole point. It is preserved. Uh, they want to retain the uh, the landscape as it is. Um, 100 hectares, 250 acres. I had to check that, but it's 250 acres in my in my language of preserved landscape. And it's really something pretty special. Whenever you turn up there and start driving through those woods that are torn with trenches and, and shell holes, and then you come to a section of preserved trenches, you can walk through those trenches, both British and German, and then, of course, the, the looming, astounding, impressive memorial to Canadian troops. All in all, it, it makes it for a pretty special site. Uh, the, I mean, the memorial itself is absolutely stunning. It's it, it's enormous. I mean, it, it really is a, an enormous memorial. We'll talk about it a little later during the podcast. But visible from the motorway as you're whistling between uh, the, the port of Calais and coming onto the battlefields, then you drive past it and you can see it from the motorway. And it's always lit uh, in the evening and the night, so you can see it during the night as well. But fantastic memorial. 
And this uh, sector we're talking about, this isn't the Somme, this isn't Flanders where we did the Fromel walk. This is kind of in the middle, isn't it, near Arras, where there was a lot of heavy fighting, uh, well, throughout the war, but particularly in 1917. Yeah, in 1917, this uh, is going to be part of the Battle of Arras, an attempt to uh, force the Germans off the ridges. Um, as an overall, it's it's part of a bigger battle. Uh, and the battle really, again, is a, another French action. Uh, it's the Chemin de Dam, the Battle of the Chemin de Dam, uh, which is going to be the French commander, uh, Robert Nivelle, uh, he's, uh, this is his big, big battle, trying to push the Germans off the Shamanda Dam. And what this is, this is part of it, but this is a massive diversionary attack. This is designed to keep the Germans occupied so that the French can have what they hope is going to be a, a great success on the Shamanda Dam. So tell us specifically about the Canadians. I mean, this is obviously a Canadian site. They chose this as one of their key memorials on the Western Front. Tell us about, about this site, why it's significant to the Canadians. Well, this is the number one site for Canada in the First World War, which is fairly obvious. It's got their national memorial. Their national memorial uh, stands on the site. The preserved landscape has been preserved deliberately. They requested from the French government if they could uh, have the site effectively. And a bit of negotiation took place, but it was handed over to them. Now, it's unlike... A lot of people believe it's part of the Canadian territory when we're on the site. Uh, it's not. It is, uh, as the British cemeteries, the war cemeteries, the Commonwealth War Grave cemeteries, are. they are given in perpetuity. So this has been given forever to, to Canada, but it's not part of, it isn't a Canadian uh, landscape. It is still a French landscape that's been given to, to the Canadians. Right, so the, the, the Canadians arrived here in the October of 1916 as, as part of the... Uh, we took over the French areas in 1950, and this is part of it. And it's next, again, it's a French request for us to take over more of the line from the Flanders, the, the low ground of Flanders, of which this ridge overlooks. But they have requested that we take it over because they, they want uh, to move more men to Verdun. So we took over this, peer, this uh, piece of landscape, and the Canadians moved in in the October of 1916 in preparation for this 1917 battle, which will take place on, let's get the, the date sorted out, the 9th of April 1917, this is when this action is going to take place, when the Canadians will uh, assault the uh, the Germans on the ridge here. And um, it's uh, it's an important part of that fighting, uh, of trying to clear the lines around uh, um, Arras itself. It's interesting, Pete, that the I always see a strong association between the Canadians and the Australians, being an Aussie myself. Uh, it seems that you know both of us, these young you know, former colonies of Britain, coming from the far ends of the earth to participate. And the numbers of men who participated in the losses were fairly similar as well, weren't they? They were indeed. And and the, the connection is, is great, in fact, because Villas Bretonneux, the Australian National Memorial, placed there because it was viewed as that's the coming of age of uh, Australia on the Western Front, Monash taking charge of the five divisions. Well, here we have a very similar thing. This is four divisions of Canadians being brought together under command of Arthur Curry. Um, and so it's it, it is seen as the coming of age of Canada fighting on the uh, on the Western Front. So they're viewed very much in a, in a similar vein, and hence in both locations we have the national memorials being built. So Australian national memorial built at Villas Bretonneux, and here we have the Canadian national memorial build, being built on Vimy Ridge. Even in terms of the number of losses, Australia lost sixty one thousand uh, dead during the war. Canada sixty six thousand. So the, the numbers of troops employed were similar. The size of the countries was similar. Canada was slightly larger and sent more men than Australia did. Um, but even the, the losses, 61,000 for Australia and 66,000 for Canada. Just And in 1918, some of the great advances that were made by the British were spearheaded by Australians and Canadians. So we always operated very closely. And, and the accounts that I've read said that the Australian troops 
thought very highly of the Canadians and that, that sentiment was returned as well. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. And, and you can see the connection, really. It's a yes, different environment, but but it's an expectation of similar, a similar type of person, somebody that's willing to go into a, a fairly hostile environment, heat for Australia uh, in the main, and, uh, and of co- course, cold for Canada. But it, it's a similar thing, people that are able to work independently. Uh, and, um, and I think that's what was needed uh, quite often. And both the fighting around Villers-Bretonneux in 1918 and the fighting here on Vimy Ridge in 19 um, in 1917 are both going to use new tactics that have slowly been developed and of course the uh, Canadians using them slightly ahead of the Australians using very similar tactics but so this is an ongoing drive to to change things and in fact this is a successful action uh, terrible losses but it is a successful action and part of that success is driven by these uh, these innovations uh, and meticulous planning powerful artillery support and extensive training, all which becomes necessary uh, if we're going to have success. Well, the Canadians very successfully pushed up this ridge and and, and cleared it of Germans, but as you said, at a huge cost to them. Tell us a little bit about some of the statistics of... of dead and wounded after this battle. Yeah, I think these are just statistics, so it's... uh, it's, it's, Sometimes the numbers are so big that it it actually becomes almost uh, mind-boggling. But the casualty is 10,602... And of course, we have to we have to give it a number, but it, it isn't necessarily spot on. Of that ten thousand six hundred and two, the dead are three thousand five hundred and ninety eight uh, were killed uh, outright, and the wounded uh, seven thousand and uh, and four uh, are, are wounded. So uh, enormous enormous losses. Uh, and I always think the wounded is a very difficult one to read because of those wounds, how many of the wounded soldiers, how many will die within weeks and months or, or, or years, or and never recover for the for the whole lives uh, uh, from their wounding. So uh, um, yeah, enormous numbers for uh, just like Australia for a a country that is relying on its on its manpower. I've talked about this before in the podcast, Pete, but people ask me what, you know, what the experience is that they will get from actually walking the ground, particularly on the Western Front. And the one perspective I always say that it brings is some sort of comprehension of the scale of loss in the First World War, because we can read those statistics. We can hear that 10,000 Odd men were killed in, or killed and wounded in a relatively short action, but you can't understand what that means until you stand in these cemeteries and see the graves of two thousand or three thousand or five thousand or ten thousand men just lying in front of you, and all of a sudden it starts to make sense. I don't think we can ever actually comprehend it. I don't think the human mind, even when standing in a cemetery, can comprehend that every one of those is a lost life and a grieving family, and what that means—that collective weight that that meant for so many families. But we start to get a little bit of a sense of it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. In, 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 I was going to actually add the, the family's aspect of it because I think it's it's difficult to comprehend ten thousand uh, uh, casualties um, and and the number of uh, the number of dead three three and a half thousand dead, but that is just a, a figure and and then put those all together and it's it's horrific. But it's by far more horrific than that because there's three and a half thousand families who have lost somebody who are all grieving and that grief will spread and spread and spread. And it's just difficult to comprehend the, the amount of grieving that was going on at these, these times throughout the whole of the, of the world, effectively, on both sides. Uh, the, this, this grieving for the lost and the, the dead and uh, terrible. It's something we should always remember that this isn't just, you know, it's something we should remember about war in general. This is some pretty savage and, and awful and emotive things that we're discussing. And it's chapters that we're, we're walking the footsteps of some pretty dark chapters of human history. It's always important we remember consequence of these, of these stages as well. It's not all glory. It's not all 
guts and VCs and you know, home in time for tea and metals. It's some lingering effects that lasted for generations after this war. I think what what's makes it extra spe- special for uh, people from uh, from the old empire, that from the Commonwealth, to come and visit these cemeteries, are those private inscriptions because they just hit home a little bit more than seeing a cross and a grave. Uh, to read the private inscriptions on the bottom of the headstones, uh, added by the uh, the relative, the grieving relatives, then that just adds another another layer really to to of information and grieving and the, and a feel that you get of of this this grieving and loss. Well. Let's begin our walk around the site, the wonderful site of Vimy Ridge. Where are we going to begin, Pete? Well, we're going to start off at the the new. It's only been open for a few years. It was inaugurated uh, on the centenary, so 2017. Uh, the Visitor's Education Centre is uh, how it's worded uh, by the Canadians. Um, it's 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 no attempt to try and build an old building, something that you would think would match into the old farms, perhaps that were in the area. This is is glass and concrete and steel. But in my mind, it's beautiful. It's, it's cleverly done below the ridge, so it's not impinging on the uh, the memorial site itself, where the memorial stands, um, and uh, automated doors as as you go in. So a very modern building, uh, but when you get within it. It has a little museum, which is well worth having a look round. The students who staff it, um, so you have students there who help you, uh, guide you, take you round. If you want a free guided tour of the site, you can get one if you're travelling independently. Um, they are there to greet you as you as you enter. There are nice clean toilets, always something we look for on the battlefields. And uh, and then they very often have uh, temporary exhibitions, which are well worth looking at as well. So we enter enter the building, have a chat to the the staff, the young girls, the students that are working there, and men. But uh, gen- generally, it tends to be more girls there than than chaps. And then we walk uh, along the out the path and onto the site itself. So it's similar to uh, to the um, Newfoundland Memorial Park at Beaumont Hamel, isn't it? Which is also staffed by uh, by Canadian students. It's the same students. They swap and change. So they'll work part of the time at Vimy Ridge and part of the time at the uh, the memorial at Beaumont Hamel. I should say that I think the Canadians um, do it very well, this concept of remembrance. That in terms of their sites, they're, they're, they're always dramatic. They're, they're very well preserved. Obviously, they're benefiting from, from insightful decisions that were made <laughs> a century ago right at the end of the war. But gee, the Canadian sites are some of the best ones to see on the Western Front, aren't they? I think it's interesting. I agree entirely. I think it's interesting that nobody else made the effort to preserve so much of the landscape. Even their individual memorials uh, to, let's say, Newfoundland, now part of uh, of Canada, but even uh, the Newfoundland memorials, uh, 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 enormous uh, caribou in bronze ta- towering above the, uh, the a little section of preserved trench, because wherever they have one of their memorials, they preserved a little bit of the landscape around the memorial. So they were very keen that they should preserve landscape wherever, as much as possible where, where Canadians had fought and so we're very lucky that this is this an enormous site as I said 250 acres it's fantastic so what I should say is this um, this education centre sits right in the heart of the landscape so as we as we park there because that's where the car park is one of two car parks we can park there and we are surrounded already by the the shell pitted landscape it's now lawned but the shell pitted landscape that surrounds the uh, the visitor centre. So once we leave the visitor centre, the, the something that's an interesting feature of this that I've never really gotten to explore is the tunnels. Talk to me about the tunnels that uh, that 
that gave the nice Yeah, well, there's one tunnel, and it's very much part of this battlefield. Uh, what was created, uh, was, this battlefield was planned. As we say, this battle was planned. The action, the fighting on Vimy Ridge on the 9th of April was planned very carefully. And one of the things that they decided was a way of, they wanted to get the troops to the front line in safety, or as much safety as possible. They could uh, shelter in tunnels before they got into the trenches and then uh, prepared for their assault. And so there were 12 subways that were dug uh, up to over a kilometre, in fact, most of them over a kilometre long, bringing the men into the uh, the frontline trenches. So a very clever concept, keep them safe, keep them underground, uh, or as safe as we, we possibly can. And so we have one of those uh, subways preserved. It's called the Grange Subway or the Grange Tunnel. It's 30, 33 foot deep. Uh, we're not going to walk the whole kilometre, which is a great shame, because it'd be nice if we could. It's, uh, it takes you about half an hour to get through the whole uh, the whole tunnel, so it's not particularly long. In fact, you can, from the visitor centre, you can see the start, and you can see where people will uh, will come out, come out and lead into the, the preserved trenches. But it's uh, it gives you a really good feel of what it was like to be moving forward uh, uh, through those tunnels. And there, each tunnel walk, when you walk through, is guided. It's about it's about 12 people at a time, maybe a few more, sometimes 15 people, I think, maximum. Um, so it's enough where you can all hear what's going on. You can you can be shown uh, and taught what's, what's happening underground by one of the guides there. So a very, very uh, good introduction to uh, life on the Western Front, really. These preserved tunnels that exist in a few places on the Western Front are absolutely extraordinary elements of the First World War. Uh, I'm thinking of the um, the Wellington quarries at uh, at Arras itself. I'm thinking of even the chalk caves at Noir, where the where Australian and Commonwealth troops left so much graffiti on the walls. It's a, I mean, I, we're we're lucky, and the, the troops were lucky that the soil is chalk and uh, was so. Uh, so amenable to tunnelling. I mean, it just it just means that tunnels are a, 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 a very strong feature of this landscape. Um, yeah, it, it, it's fantastic because you can carve into it, and the Canadians did. There are certainly some replicas of some of their carvings, which we cannot get to the originals uh, because they're still underground and dangerous to get to, but there are, within the museum, there are replicas of some of those carvings, and they're fantastic. Some guys really went to town and they obviously had an artistic flair, so we get some fantastic regimental uh, battalion badges uh, uh, and all sorts of other... Uh, uh, artistry that's been carved into this easy-to-carve chalk. One of the things that the tunnels lead to that's most dramatic on the side is the preserved trenches. Talk to us a little bit about that, because these these ones are quite unique on the Western Front. Uh, there are preserved trenches in other areas, but these ones are, are quite unique and give an interesting perspective. There are. I'm going to give you a personal my feel of these, um, a personal view of these trenches. They are they're fantastic um, for students who wish to get an idea, a very rough idea of what it was like to to walk down a trench. They've been preserved in concrete, so that's the interesting thing. They've been preserved in concrete. Um, so for somebody that has no idea what a trench is like and uh, has limited time on the battlefields to walk through these trenches, you can see the Canadian trench. Across there's a crater, and then on the far side of the lip of the crater, the, the German trenches are there, so we can walk through the Canadian trenches, we can walk through the German trenches, and you get a, a real feel of what it was like. I'm not a massive fan, only purely because unless you have a good guide um, taking you around or you've done a lot of reading, you can start to think that this is what the trenches look like, that they were concreted, they were clean, as these are spotless, um, and this is what it was like to be in a frontline trench. So you really need to think this is not what it was like to be in a frontline trench. This is just a preserved impression of where the trenches were. And interestingly, I, I only found this out in, in preparing for this podcast, is that those trenches were accidentally preserved. 
in a way. They were like everything else. They were slowly softening into the landscape. And uh, how they were preserved is because the builders who were building the memorial in the 1920s and 30s, they uh, had a delay in the concrete and the stone arriving. I think it was the stone arriving for the memorial and they needed to be kept busy. And so somebody just said, oh, well, why we've got all this concrete and all of this reinforcing. Let's go and, pres- uh, and, and literally concrete the trenches so they don't keep falling in because it's, it's an imbuggerance. We've got to keep digging them out and putting new sandbags in. If we concrete them, then, then, then we can pre- preserve them as they are. So that's the only reason. It was not planned as in let's preserve these trenches and keep them. It was, it was a, a, an accidental act of fate, really, that means that we, ha- we have now got them. And I have to say, if you have no idea what a trench is like, then they are a really good interest introduction to, uh, to, to, to the trenches, but you have to make sure that people are aware this is not what the trenches look like in reality. I think the interesting way that they've preserved them is, um, is quite remarkable that, that it is concrete, but they've actually made concrete sandbags. So it does go some way towards at least giving an impression of what it was like uh, to be in the trench system. But as you say, uh, the chaos and the confusion and the filth of the trenches are, are certainly not replicated there. It's fascinating how close they are as well. I mean, it's a, it's a sector of the front line where the trenches were very, very close, separated only by that massive mine crater. It does, uh, it does give you an impression of why you would not want to put your head up above the, <laughs> above the parapet. It does indeed. But again, you need to make sure that the, that your your clients and especially your students are aware that this is unusual. Because again, if you just look and you say, oh, there are the German trenches, you know, less than uh, than 50 metres uh, across the, uh, the, the crater, and you get the impression that this is how close trenches were along the whole of the Western Front. And of course, they're not. The, the, basically, the distance of the trenches is dictated by the landscape. Here, we have a crater, so one on one trench, the enemy's on one lip, and the Canadians, as it happened to be, on the other lip. But this is fairly unusual. It's not that common to, to be as close as, as they are. So you need to make sure that your students uh, and clients are aware of that, because other than that, concrete trenches very close together it sticks in your it sticks in your mind because it's visual so you you need to make sure that people are aware that this is unusual it was preserved because it was unusual and talk to me about those craters pete because not something you would expect to find in every sector of the western front obviously um talk to me about these craters how they came to be there yeah, it's, it's the nature of the warfare here, um, is that the chalk, it's a, it's a chalk landscape, so it's very easy to tunnel through. Um, it also means that, uh, you can, you can use it for two reasons. You can tunnel underneath and you can dig places like the subways to move your men around. Uh, you can also use them for detonating, uh, of mines beneath your enemy. So you tunnel underneath your enemy, you pack in explosives and you detonate uh, beneath them. And when the Canadians took over here from, effectively the French had been here prior to the Empire troops arriving, we realised that the the French had been a little lax and there was an awful lot of German tunnelling beneath us and we became very concerned that they were going to blow uh, explosive devices uh, beneath our frontline trenches. So what we did, we had to tunnel very quickly and get down ourselves and start counter-tunnelling to see what the Germans were doing to try and stop them. So it is an area that became like a Swiss cheese. I say it quite often when I'm on the Western Front that we have sites that became like uh, a Swiss cheese beneath us and this really did. There were tunnels going everywhere. The mine craters here are extraordinary. They're all named and I'm not going to run through the names of them all but there are a whole series of mine craters that are very very deep. Uh, Montreal being one of them. Perhaps the most uh, the one that's the most uh, visual because it's on a junction on the road when you're driving onto the site, just almost beside the visitor centre, is one called Broadmarsh Crater. And these are enormous craters. 
the Montreal Creator, which was blown actually in the November of 1916. So a lot of these craters are there on the landscape when the Canadians are fighting there in 1917. Um, and this was 24 tonnes of explosives used to uh, detonate the Montreal Creator. So uh, enormous craters in this landscape, nicely smoothed over and grass now. And so they... You have to actually, interestingly, you can miss them. You need to be on a, it's much better if you're on a bus or a coach because you can then look down slightly and you actually can spot more of these craters because they're set back from the road, a lot of them, and not visible. Because one of the things we can't do, we cannot walk across this landscape. I should have perhaps pointed that out earlier. There are walkways. So a lot of the landscape, you're not allowed to walk across. You can't enter the sites. And in fact, there are very big red signs that say, do not enter undetonated explosives, which is giving you a little bit, bit of a warning. And there are electric wide fences around it, which a lot of people think, oh, that's a bit uh, a bit tough to try and stop people entering. It's not. Um, we have sheep all over this site and the, they keep the lawns down. It's the sheep that are actually employed to keep the lawns uh, uh, down. They don't want to use uh, whippersnippers or strimmers or weed whackers, depending on where you come from, uh, to keep the lawns down. It's the sheep that keep the lawns uh, nice and, and cropped low so you can see the craters. I thought I'd just uh, use this opportunity to quote something from a, a newspaper, in fact. It was called uh, 13 Years After by a veteran who was called Will Bird. And he's returning to the battlefield, as it, uh, as it, quite, as it says, 13 years after, after the action. From the cratered rim, one gets a view of the permanent trenches and the cemetery that is being established about 300 yards from the old front line and a little to the left of, broad, of the Broad March area. In it are buried many of those unknown dead they have found on the ridge. Rarely a month goes by that they do not find at least one body. It is hard to estimate how many dead there are among the old craters and shell holes in chalky cuts and gullies hidden in the old ditches and weed tangles. Last year, a tourist stepped into an old trench and almost trod on a body that had lain there all the years, barely covered by the debris. I slid down one sticky, muddy entrance, taking a great fall of clay with me, unable to stop myself until I was far down in a chalky passage, so small I could barely keep on. Once down, however, and in the dugout itself, was just as it had been in 1917, the walls were blackened where candles had been fastened and there were tiny pools of water on the floor and much filth. The timber that had held the bunks had been taken, but the place still seemed to reek of occupation. Only one souvenir remained and I did not touch it. Near the door, just inside, across timber, a thin board was still nailed in place. The end of it had been broken off but one familiar German word was lettered on what remained, verboten. In all, I found five old dugout entrances, but did not attempt to go down another. The craters seemed unchanged. Here and there, wires and stakes are still in place. Along the lips and down in the craters themselves, you can find stick bombs, mills grenades, stokes, old bulletins, water bottles, almost anything roaming around the old lines. Isn't that just an extraordinary quote, Pete? And again, illustrates exactly what you were saying about how neat and ordered and tidy it is now. But even 13 years, you know, over a decade after the fighting, it was still littered with corpses and the remains and the detritus of war. Just extraordinary. I, I get a chill when I read accounts like that. I have to say, Matt, it, it doesn't change that much, really. Um, you would think 100 years plus since this all took place, 
But because I live here, I have that that great joy of being able to explore the battlefields. And just occasionally, you still find little areas where you really are taken back. Uh, a few years ago, a farmer digging a ditch just scraped the top of a dugout. And I was able to, uh, to it was a, a metal, a tin dugout. And I was able to just slip inside the, the tin roof and, and enter the dugout. And, and just as, uh, as that uh, quote uh, mentioned, I just felt like this had nobody had, uh, had been in here, and obviously nobody had been in here since it had been covered over, and it just felt like I was back there. It was it was extraordinary, and uh, and again, munitions everywhere. Wherever there are new uh, ditches or or uh, excavations being done for for houses, then that munitions that is mentioned in that quote, they are still still here today. Uh, it's extraordinary. The red signs that warn you against uh, unexploded ordnance. How uh, how accurate do you think that is? Uh, well, it's accurate. There is unexploded ordnance absolutely everywhere. Uh, and it, it became very visual a few years ago when they decided to extend the car park and actually resurface the parking area that we'd been using. And slowly but surely, a, a pile of shells started appearing alongside where the old car park had been. And you realise that we'd been parking on top of enormous amounts of ordnance that were just below the surface. And you have to say, it's fine. Now, you, there's, nothing is going to set those off, he said, touching wood. In the main, it needs something extraordinary, like a man with a hammer and a chisel, which is one of the stupid ways that uh, we have casualties on the Western Front still. It's people trying to souvenir hunt and take the brass drive bands off the shells or the fuses, which normally uh, gets them injured or killed. So we still have casualties here, but nothing is going to set off a shell that's uh, beneath the, the, the floor. There are no mines, as in the Second World War mines, that you stand on and they detonate. So we could literally walk across that landscape and be, and be quite safe. Uh, but that's that's the, the whole point. They don't want you to do that because they want to preserve it as it is. They don't want tracks and trails going all over. But you'd have to do something fairly silly if you were walking across the landscape to cause a detonation. And in fact, we don't. Uh, sadly, I sometimes think, because I often tease my students when I've got a student group to watch the sheep because you never know when one of them's going to go... Poof, um, which obviously never happens, but they don't know that because you read the sign and it says danger and detonated explosives. Look at the sheep and you can put the two and two together. Uh, but uh, sadly, no, we never we don't lose sheep on the site either. And where are we heading now on our walk paid across the Vimy Ridge site? Okay, so I'm going to take us on a little bit of a detour. If we were walking straight from the visitor centre, we've had a look at the preserved trenches, we've uh, walked through them, we then uh, walk onto the road and we can start heading up towards the memorial. But I want us to turn left because there are a few cemeteries within this this memorial, preserved memorial park. And I want us just to walk across and go and have a look at one of the, the little cemeteries. And in doing so, we get a really good view up to the National Memorial, the Canadian National Memorial, which will effectively be on our right. But as we walk down this road, we are going to come to a little cemetery on the left, which I think is an extraordinary little cemetery called Gavenchy Road Canadian Cemetery. Tell us all about that, Pete. It's not one I think I've ever actually been to. So uh, tell me, uh, tell me all about it. Well, it, it's one that a lot of people don't go to because very close to it, there is a there is a, a really big cemetery. It's called Canadian Cemetery Number no. 2. It's a concentration cemetery. And in fact, it's a one-way system. So you drive past this big uh, se- uh, concentration cemetery. In other words, created after the war as they brought in bodies from, the, from this landscape because there were enormous numbers of men lost on this landscape and it was going to take uh, to the end of the war before they can clear it properly. So they created the Canadian Cemetery Number no. 2. So we'll drive past that one. Um, Of course, 
if you're visiting, you want to go and have a look at it. But for the nature of this podcast, we just want to go and have a look at the smaller cemetery. Um, as I say, Givenchy Road, Canadian Cemetery. Is that Givenchy or is it Givenchy? I think it's Givenchy. My French is appalling. It's a good question. It's a good question. I, I don't think we want to get me bogged down no. on the French pronunciations. That will be a road to nowhere. But uh, um, So why are we... Givenchy, why? I would say. Yes, that's good. I like it. I like it. Uh, so why are we visiting this cemetery? Well, because it's uh, only 110 named burials uh, within the cemetery. Um, but they are in straight rows, two straight rows, and then just a small grouping of men to the front, and actually one individual chap uh, to, the, uh, to the left, um, and surrounded by a very low wall that's in a circle. And what becomes very obvious when you, you just step back and you look at it and you think, this is a, this is one of the, the shell holes. This is a shell hole and these guys have been buried in the shell hole. And yes, they have. This is a battlefield cemetery. So this was done at the time when the Germans have been forced off the ridge. This is still a very dangerous place to be. And they're gathering in the men in the, in the few weeks after the 9th of April and they're burying them in this cemetery and they're burying them in a mass grave in one way or another. And we'll never know exactly how they're burying them, but the clue is touching headstones. These two long rows are all touching headstones. Now, what that normally means is not directly below. And so these guys are within the confines of the cemetery, but almost certainly not directly below each individual uh, headstone. And when you think about it, it's got to be that. Did they have the time to do two nice neat rows of men exactly spaced equally? No, they didn't. This is a battlefield cemetery. The next question, I suppose, is if there's a big concentration cemetery just next door to it, why weren't these guys exhumed and moved into the larger concentration cemetery? Well, and this is only a guess. We'll never know exactly. There's no way we can know. But you just have to look and think about it. And my view would be, is if they started trying to find these guys, they know that they're there. But if you were physically going to try and find them to move them into a concentration cemetery, are you going to find them? And I think the answer is probably not. So it was safer to leave them in their, their pre-existing cemetery to make that into a permanent cemetery uh, and not exhume them and put their markers up. And so I think you, with all of these cemeteries, you have to think about what happened at the time when they were buried, what the conditions were like, and even later, what would the conditions be like when they're trying to retrieve the bodies? And so I, I, I believe that that's the reason this cemetery exists so close to uh, to this big concentration cemetery. But it's a very moving cemetery. One of my favourites, just to, to sit quietly, it's got two nice chairs, uh, stone chairs you can sit in, benches, I suppose, rather than chairs, uh, and contemplate where you are surrounded by this extraordinary landscape. The other thing I should say about this landscape, it is, it's treed. We haven't, uh, we haven't mentioned the trees. And of course, you're now getting this, this vision of it with nothing on it. It is treed. The whole of this landscape has trees, not too close together. We want to be able to see through it to see the landscape, but they are very Canadian trees. Deliberately, they brought in Canadian trees. So we have, uh, pines and they're, they're Scots pines. And we have uh, maple trees uh, all, all around us within this uh, this this treed, very smooth lawned area. Well, smooth in the sense the lawn is smooth, not as the landscape. The landscape is very rippling and cratered and trenched, uh, but uh, but it's a, a beautiful imagery of the western front i love going there in the winter if there's been snow and you you get these darker trees with the white snow on the on the lawned areas it's fantastic um like all of these places you can come at different times of the year and get a completely different impression of the of the landscape well leaving the cemetery we now come to the heart of the whole site the amazing canadian national memorial which i think is 
one of the best, if not the best, on the Western Front, towering at the top of this ridge over the landscape. Just so dramatic and so emotive. Pete, tell us all about the Canadian National Memorial. Well, I think the first thing that you would notice as you as you walk towards it, its size uh, and the landscape that it sits within, it, it matches, it works very well because you, you need a big memorial to sit within a big preserved landscape. And here there are no trees. So as we crest the ridge, there are no trees at all. And it's very white. In fact, it's absolutely in the, in a sunny day on the summer, uh, in the summer, when the sun is reflecting from it, you really need sunglasses. It's very hard to see because it, it is so blindingly white uh, limestone uh, when uh, when it, when the sun's shining on it but it is absolutely stunning the next thing you will notice as you approach it is that it seriously is on a ridge very often in the first world war we, we talk about ridges uh, and hills and 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 people get this impression that, that i'm going to be taking them hill 60 you imagine that you're going to go to a a big hill it's just a ripple in in the landscape uh, the ridges of the somme ripples in the landscape really there's there's no really high ridges apart from this one this is a seriously high ridge and i'm talking about the mp's and um, the empire's battlefield here it's different in other areas on the western front but uh, this is a, a seriously high ridge and the views uh, across the plains beneath us, and these are the plains of Douai, are, are extraordinary. In fact, we can see all the way to the Messine battlefield from here. It, it is The views are just extraordinary and that is one of the main reasons as well as this is where the heavy fighting took place. But this, when they are deciding where are we going to put our national memorial, uh, this must have been the, the absolute decision making kind of uh, clincher uh, here. This is where it's got to go. So designed by a, a chap called uh, Walter uh, Seymour Alward, um, who, who is a Canadian, and he won a competition. It was an open competition as to who could design the, the memorial, and he was successful in his, uh, his, his design. It took 11 years to build, and just looking at it, you know why it would take so long. And in fact, I've been here for nearly 20 years now, and so I was lucky that uh, for the 90th anniversaries here, they stripped all the stonework off this memorial to refurbish it. It was refurbished for the 90th uh, anniversary, and it took about three years to do it. It was a, a very substantial refurbishment. But in that refurbishment, they removed all the stonework from the core of the memorial, which is in fact concrete and brick. Uh, and then the stone is placed on the outside. So we got an opportunity to see how it, how it had been built. So it was uh, it was a great opportunity. Um, and uh, so it's been totally refurbished in the in the last uh, ten years. Uh, superb. Uh, the, the limestone was actually an old Roman quarry was opened up in Croatia to supply the limestone. They they picked a very specific stone that they that they wanted. And in fact, again, um, of course, there's been recent conflict in the area where the uh, the quarry was, and uh, it had to be reopened again to for this refurbishment. So twice the same quarry was used. They wanted to match the stone when they refurbished. Um, the imagery is just extraordinary, I have to say. Not to everyone's, everyone's tastes, but I have to say it's grown on me over the years. But there's uh, basically a lot of naked ladies and, and semi-naked uh, men, both, uh, draped around the memorial. But every single one has a meaning. Uh, you can buy various guidebooks that will tell you exactly what they all mean. But to me, the most the most stunning one is on the... The front of the memorial, now that's one of the things that people very often get confused with. You approach the memorial from the back. This is the back of the memorial. So you walk on this fairly level landscape to the edge of the ridge, climb up onto the viewing platform which surrounds the memorial and look out onto this landscape uh, right way on the plains of Douai. But very few people then realise that they're actually now standing at the front. And so what you really need to do is walk down the steps that are at the front, so that you've that you've, you've came up the steps at the back, walk down the steps at the front, onto the lawned area there, walk out 
right onto the lawned area, turn around and look up at the memorial. And that's when you get the full impact of what the artist was trying to achieve. And we have two pylons, enormously high pylons. So two big kind of shafts that are going up into the sky. One is representing France and the other one is representing Canada. So it's the, the twin countries uh, fighting side by side. And in the, between them, looking down at you is a, a woman and, and she's very obviously mourning. She's, I think, holding a, uh, a flower uh, in her hand, but she's letting it droop. She has a, a shawl over over her head. Um, and I've always known it as, as Mourning Canada. That's how I've always perceived it. But I think the proper title is Canada Bereft. Um, and so it, it's it, it's a Canadian woman just just looking down and looking so sad. And then because you're on the lawn area looking at her, you realise that what she's looking at is a tomb that's beneath her. So there is a tomb of a soldier right at the foot of the memorial. And you realise that it, it's it's the tomb of, of Canada, of Canadians, basically. So it's 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 the a Canadian woman looking down at the tomb of, of uh, the lost lives of Canada. So an absolute stunning memorial. I love the symbolism of these First World War memorials, Pete, the, the stories that that you discover when you do the research. The research is available and they, they give you information about it at the visitor's centre, but it's so easy to overlook the significance of all these elements of the memorial and the Canadian one in particular here at Vimy Ridge just has astounding significance. And each, as you say, each sculpture reflects a different aspect of, of loss and remembrance and just a, just a fascinating place to visit. It would take too long to, to go through all of the, the different features and, and everybody, as you say, represents something. Um, there's the uh, swords into plowshares, so there's a man bending swords at one corner. So it, it, it's absolutely stunning. I, I just found the whole the whole concept of it is very, very clever. And of course, in the nighttime, when it's backlit uh, and, lit, and lit up, uh, uh, equally stunning. And if you go into the plains of Dwey, which you can drive be, beneath it, literally on the road beneath it and look up, yeah, extraordinary. Um, I think what's what's interesting as well, if you think of this is sitting right within the Canadian battlefield and within a 16 kilometre radius, if you were to do a radius from the memorial, there are uh, 30 cemeteries within that area and over 7,000 soldiers buried uh, within that, that 16 kilometre radius from the memorial. So it sits right in the heart of the Canadian battlefields of 1917. And we aren't the first visitors to this site, obviously, but there was a pretty significant uh, visitor who came here in 1940 on a bit of a whirlwind tour of France. Uh, who might that have been, Pete? Yeah, Hitler was here. Uh, he visit visited an awful lot of the major memorials on the Western Front, and there's a lot of reasons why... Well, a lot of people have come up with theories of why he's doing it. I think he's doing it mainly because he's interested, I have to say. We, we get all sorts of stories that he was doing it to try and show to the outside world that um, Germany would not damage the memorials of the First World War, and actually it didn't. There are very few uh, uh, memorials damaged, of course, the exception for Australia being the Second Division Memorial, which was actually destroyed by the Germans. I'm sure we'll cover that in a future podcast. But uh, this not damaged at all by the Germans, perhaps not looked after, but certainly not deliberately damaged. But I think Hitler is coming here because he's honestly, honestly interested. He's a First World War veteran. He, he visited at the same time on the, during this June of 1940 as we're being forced into the sea. Um, and we get the evacuation from Dunkirk. He is out visiting his old haunts, the places that he went to, and then some of the the larger memorials that he obviously wouldn't have seen as a as a German soldier. But he goes to uh, to, to visit them as well. So yeah, he's uh, he was there in the, the June of nineteen forty. One account that I read, I'm not sure if it's true, is that he arrived in a light plane which landed on that lawn beneath the memorial that uh, that you've just directed us to. Uh to, to go and stand on. I'm not sure if that is the case, but uh, that uh, would certainly be a dramatic arrival. 
Yes, I don't know. To be honest, Matt, um, uh, it's quite likely because obviously he's moving around these these sites, and uh, it's probably one of the safest ways of getting around. Certainly, we had no air cover at that time. The uh, the, the the RAF was not uh, not able to uh, to fly in this part. But I think the Germans are uh, fairly much got air superiority. So yeah, it's uh, quite likely. In terms of historic figures, uh, it's amazing how many places you can stand where Hitler stood. He he, he made it a, a great point to illustrate everywhere that he was going, and whether it's the famous footage of him at the Trocadero looking out over the Eiffel Tower in Paris, or the Menin Gate in Ypres, or Langemark German Cemetery, or here at Vimy Ridge, or indeed the bunker at Fromel. There's just so many places that Hitler went and made sure he took a film crew with him and a cameraman to document all these places he was visiting. So if you if you are someone who likes standing in the footsteps of history, obviously, you know, I don't, I don't think we've got too many Hitler fans out there, but if you're someone who likes connecting with the, 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 the history between both the First and Second World Wars, then, then Hitler's journey around France in 1940 is a great way to do that. I think what's interesting, isn't it, as well, we have to... Uh, we forget really because we're looking at it from our point of view but this memorial had only just just really been completed and inaugurated it was only inaugurated in 1936 so effectively he's coming to see a new memorial this this has only been there for four years and in fact interestingly it was King Edward VIII who actually inaugurated it, inaugurated it on the 26th of July in 1936 so four years later Hitler's visiting so he's visiting something that's that's new it's a stunning memorial, and I would say to everyone who's on the Western Front, don't miss it because it's just so dramatic. It, it does sum up everything that we think about the, the, the triumphant and glorious memorials to troops uh, on the battlefields. It's, it's something absolutely stunning. But um, we're going to leave the National Memorial now and head down to another smaller memorial. Tell us about this one, Pete. Very interesting. Well, this is one that, that most people just drive past. And I have to say, thankfully, it's also been refurbished. Lots of memorials. In fact, you'd have to say the anything that was was it looking a bit tappy, uh, shabby or tatty has actually uh, was refurbished for the centenary. And the Moroccan Division Memorial, which is just across the road from where you would park to go and visit the, uh, the Canadian uh, Vimy Memorial, uh, has, was refurbished and it's a lovely little kind of low wall with an inscription on it and it's commemorating the Moroccan division, a French division who fought here in the May of 1915 and again we forget that these battlefields that we are visiting for the Canadians or the Australians or the Brits or whoever uh, within the, uh, the the old empire's forces who are fighting here the French had normally fought here before and the French had held the ridge and lost it and then tried to retake it and the Moroccans had taken the ridge again and then been fought off the off the ridge. And so this is commemorating the Moroccan division and its attempt to uh, retake the ridge, uh, t- which they successfully did, but then later on uh, very quickly forced back off it again. Uh, they're North African troops and, of course, a larger proportion or a large proportion of the French army uh, was uh, supported by troops from North Africa who came across uh, to assist North Africa being the larger uh, one of the larger colonies, Morocco being a colony of uh, of, of France. And interestingly, I, I read something a few years ago now that I always imagined that the Moroccan division was full of guys who were of North African uh, uh, descent or North Africans, and there weren't. There were an awful lot of French people because there was an awful lot of French people living in Morocco and they just joined their local division. So there were actually uh, uh, French uh, soldiers or French uh, personnel within the Moroccan division uh, that was fighting on the ridge. So it's not just uh, native people from uh, from North Africa. There are French people within these divisions as well. Well, it's a fascinating site, Pete, and um, thank you for your insights into a walk around here. Every time I come to Vimy Ridge, I think I learn something new because there's just so much to see on this site. 
it's just extraordinary an absolute must see on the western front and um thank you for taking us around today it's a great site to, to come and visit uh, because of the, the staff. If you come support, totally unsupported uh, and you just park your car up, then you can go into the visitor centre and you'll find somebody who will, will take you around. There are also some very good guidebooks uh, there there as well. Um, I didn't mention, but you can get a cup of coffee here as well. Very helpful on the Western Front if you can buy a cup of coffee. Well, it's a wonderful site, Pete. It's wonderful to be walking it with you. Thank you very much once again. No, pleasure, Matt. I enjoyed it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.